Welcome to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we're talking about Clark Ashton Smith's story, The Planet of the Dead, which was originally published in the magazine Weird Tales in 1932. Clark Ashton Smith was a contemporary of H.P. Lovecraft's. and In fact, he's, he's mentioned in The Call of Cthulhu and a, a couple of other Lovecraft pieces. And really, he's a, he's a member of the Weird Tales Big Three, along with Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard. And he's generally regarded as the best wordsmith of the three of them. And he's someone who had a really strong influence on the science fiction and fantasy writer Gene Wolfe, uh, especially on his magnum opus, The Book of the New Sun. And uh, Wolfe, in fact, even edited the best of Clark Ashton Smith collection called The Return of the Sorcerer. And I bring this up not simply as a fun fact, but because you and I, Brandon, do a Gene Wolfe podcast called, very simply, The Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. And of course, we would love for listeners to check that out, even if it's perhaps their first time uh, hearing the name Gene Wolfe. You can see Clark Ashton Smith's influence, particularly from this story, all over Wolfe's magnum opus, as you said, The Book of the New Sun. But I just can't encourage our listeners enough if they enjoy this sort of writing, these sorts of ideas that Clark Ashton Smith presents in the story, to go back and pick up a Wolf short story collection, join us in some of our earlier episodes, and continue to travel along with us as we we journey through all of Wolf's works. But this is a story that I find to be pretty incredible on a number of levels. It's written by a young Clark Ashton Smith, who's developing as a writer, figuring out his ideas about what it means to be a writer, the writer's role or the poet's role in the world. But it also has a plot that I think gets picked up all the time in the science fiction world. And we're going to look at that in our discussion. But before we get there, Glenn, I think we should walk through the plot. You're invoking the the plot of this story, but I find The Planet of the Dead to be one of these fun, weird fiction stories that is very heavy on mood, but in fact, very light on any kind of actual plot. Uh, To me, there's not actually a lot that happens in this story. And if we were to just recap the plot points, the story beats, that would be a huge disservice to what Smith is doing here, which is writing thick descriptions of this strange, this weird place, this this marvelous setting that he has imagined. And, And really, we might say that what he's interested in doing here is painting word pictures. And Smith was also a a visual artist as well as a prose writer and a poet. So as I recap the plot, I'll also be picking out some of these key passages that seem to highlight what I think of as the real purpose and also the real art of this story. Well, we open with a protracted introduction to our protagonist, who's a a guy named Francis Melchior, Frank Melchior. Melchior is a dealer in antiques, but his real passion, his avocation, is astronomy. And Smith pairs these two interests to explain that Melchior is drawn to all things that have about them the irresoluble mystery of departed time and the ready path to exotic realms in further space, to the only spheres where his fancy can dwell in freedom and his dreams can know contentment. Smith goes on to explain that Melchior simply doesn't like the here and the now. And and this reminds me very much of Jones from The Insanity of Jones by Blackwood, which we read last time. And I think this really is straight out of that same mold. But Smith here goes a step further than Blackwood does. and, And he tells us definitively that Melchior is one of those people who have not wholly forgotten the transcendent glories of other eons and the worlds from which they were exiled into human birth. 
And it is this quality that makes him furtive and weary in the here and now. Now, this detail here never comes back in the story at all. But this character development here indicates that in this world that Smith is building here, humans are the reincarnations of some other type of sentient being. Though there's not a direct payoff to the line you just read, and this is all just in the first paragraph of the story, rereading the story uh, in preparation for this podcast, I found that this line is just full of foreshadowing. Its function is to, upon rereading, gain further appreciation for the type of traveling that Frank Melchior does. Melchior is, of course, the name of one of the three magi that gives uh, gifts to Jesus when he's born in a manger. And I don't know if the name has any real significance here other than it sounds strange. And I think that's kind of the point of it. There's a lot of strange sounding names and archaic words used in this story. And so the name, rather than having a an extra significant meaning, really adds to the mood of the story in general. I love the way that Smith also calls attention to the nature of people caught up in jobs they may not love, or if they're good at them and they have no passion for them, by pointing out this notion of a vocation and an avocation. And this idea, I feel, has been really lost in our time, though I don't think it was that strange for many people to have avocations, callings. This is part of American transcendentalism that was still... Uh, maybe not a major influence, but a normal part of the makeup of the intellectual life of the United States, I I think, in the 1930s. And going back to the name, I I think there is something funny, maybe two funny things that Smith is trying to do here. I mean, mean, one, thinking about the three wise men as following a a star and and using that as a a means of journeying, that's something we're going to encounter here in, I don't know, just a few sentences. Uh, But also, of course, we remember that one of the gifts that the three wise men bring to the baby Jesus is frankincense, which is why I wanted to shorten the name Francis to Frank. I think Smith probably thinks this is a funny Christmas joke. Yeah, right. Well, it's working on a couple of levels then that I just missed. Yeah, well, I'm not sure they're really all that funny jokes. I don't know that Smith was well known for his humor, uh, as we'll see as we get into this story. Well, at this point, we learn that Melchior doesn't have a spouse. He doesn't have any friends. And it's because those types of relationships just get in the way of antiques and telescopes. He's done well for himself financially, and he has a really awesome telescope at his hilltop suburban home. And that home is where we're going now. Melchior isn't really an astronomer, even though that's the word Smith has used. He, he's not interested in cataloging anything or discovering anything, and he's certainly not interested in doing any math. Rather, he has a mystic sensitivity toward all that is far off in space. Uh, basically, he likes looking at the stars, and he likes imagining what other worlds might be out there circling around those stars. And there's one star in particular that really captivates him, and he devotes several nights to observing it. And one night, it seems to be just a little bit larger and a little bit brighter than usual. And as he looks at it, an intense vertigo strikes him, and he feels as if he is falling. And then, he seems to find himself in the ultimate darkness, and all is silence. Melchior suffers here from, like, the Dunning-Kroger effect. He has a a big passion for his hobby, but he doesn't want to spoil that with actual knowledge and information. And he's almost dismissive of the type of mind that operates in the mathematical calculations of orthodox astronomy. And we'll see how 
how Melchior's understanding of the calculations of astronomy, how they may bring doom to people. And the mystical is what brings people a sense of life and a sense of, of well-being in some sense. I just wanted to point that out. It seems like a strangely uh, American attitude in some sense as well, <laughs> where the, the, he's skeptical of the experts because he wants to protect his feelings about the subject. Right. I mean, he, he, he's an enthusiast, but he's a space enthusiast. He's nothing remotely like an astronomer, but he's having fun and, uh, and good for him. But now our story is about to get interesting. When Melchior wakes up, he's not at his suburban home anymore. Instead, he finds himself standing on a road that runs interminably before him into the vague, tremendous vistas of an inconceivable world. And there's a real thick description here. Our first glimpse of this new world, and I just want to read two sentences of it to give a little taste of how Smith does this. There were low, funereal, drooping trees along the road, with sad-colored foliage and fruits of a deathly violet. And beyond the trees were range on range of monumental obelisks, of terraces and domes, of colossal multiform piles that reached away in endless, countless perspective toward an indistinct horizon. Over all, from an ebon purple zenith, there fell in rich, unlustrous rays the illumination of a blood-red sun. Now, obviously, there's a lot of vivid language here, and I, I think this highlights pretty well the sort of thing that Smith is interested in doing, though we'll get a few more passages like this as we go on. Right, and some of them are real clunkers. The only thing I really want to point out here in, in this section is is to say that there have been so many moments in this text up until this point for our listeners who have not read it, where reveries or dreams or something of that nature has been mentioned. We're probably up to six times that dreams or something of that sort has been mentioned and we're only on page two of the story, and we get more and more of this sense of the dreamscape that Melchior is now entranced within, um, though it may not be his dream at all. Yes, that's exactly right. As, as Melchior looks around, at first all of this does seem very bizarre to him, but then... It doesn't. It, it starts to feel familiar. It feels like he's come home. And now he remembers that his name is, in fact, Antarian the Poet. And the English language fades from his mind, and he sees that he is wearing the clothing that is appropriate to this world. Uh, this world, by the way, is called Fandium. Uh, this is a great name that suggests phantom. And he is a native of the land of Carmalos. Antarian recalls now that he had gone on a brief journey to a neighboring realm, and that his existence as Francis Melchior was just a kind of dream. He is nearly home now to his native city, Sadoth, and to the woman he loves, the beautiful Thamira. And yes, that is a lot of new names to throw out in just one paragraph. Smith doesn't deploy this information without elegance, though. I think the way he transitioned into... He transitions from Melchior's consciousness, the dream of Melchior being Antarion and this world fandium, to Melchior being the dream of Antarion is just fantastic. It's a really, really clever trick. I also love the costume that Antarion is wearing. Uh, it's the Smith writes that Antarion was 
attired in a costume of somber, moth-like red, of a style unknown to any human people or epoch. To me, that's unimaginable. That's nobody had ever come up with a moth-red garment of a style that, though it may not have been popular, would have been entirely unknown. But this is that weird fiction trope of describing things in indescribable ways to kind of tease at the empty parts of your imagination. And I think Smith does this a lot better than Lovecraft. Well, and you've got to remember that Smith is writing this long before glam rock was a thing. So there may have been outfits that people hadn't <laughs> right, conceived right. up yet. Yeah. Well, we learn now that the reason Francis Melchior had been so fascinated by antiques on Earth is that Fandium is incomputably old, and the ages of its history are too many to be recalled. More urgently, we learn that the number of the dead who are preserved in proud monuments and huge necropolises outnumber the living on the planet at any given moment. And this is certainly one meaning of the planet of the dead, though we're shortly going to find out that there's another one. But for now, it's time to go meet Thamira. Uh, She's great, and Antarian is super into her, like a middle schooler with a crush. They are both the last representatives of noble ancient families whose lineages are so long that they can't even be tabulated. Antarian muses a little bit here on their society, and he uses words such as decadence, senescence and moribund and he describes the dread ennui that marks so many of his fellows that's a pretty amazing band name by the way Uh, and this is also a slave society these two lovers are waited on while they are having this conversation it's clear that interion is able to be a poet or the is imagined to be a poet because he's part of this noble class he can travel through other conscience consciousnesses And I think this is the first instance where we see Smith really looking at the maybe spiritual quality of the poet. We also have this great description of Sadith, the town, the city, the dead city where they live as where Thamira and Antarion live as we're being introduced to Thamira. And this is just a sentence I really love, so I want to read it. And here in Sadith... Beyond the domes and terraces and columns of the huge necropolis, a necromantic flower wherein forgotten lilies live again, there bloomed the superb and sorrowful loveliness of Thamira. I just think that's a great description. Also, necromantic flowers are great band name as well yeah there's a whole movement in in pop music here and rock music that could be could be derived from just this story Thamira has been worried that Antarian has been gone for so long and she also has some bad news their son is dying and they have only a month to live only a single month before eternal night will fall and the chill of outer space will creep across Fandium And I think we can see here immediately the impact that this story had on Gene Wolfe, presumably when he read it as a teenager. Dying son? Check. Culture obsessed with death and full of necropolises and cemeteries? Check. Dense prose? Check. Okay, so the dying son is an obstacle that has to be overcome. And so now, finally, we have ourselves something that amounts to a a plot, to, to a story. Except, not really. Antarian doesn't care about this obstacle at all. His solution to the problem is to not bother overcoming it, but rather to just accept it and to spend his last month in bed with Thamira. Now, this doesn't work for Thamira because the king of their land has been wooing her with gifts, vows, and 
also threats. And he's not going to let these two lovers be together during this last month. But Antarian is not to be dissuaded. He basically says, okay, cool. Well, we just won't stay here in town then. Uh, We'll flee the city and we'll go to the sepulchers and the ruins. And it's there in those necropolises that we'll have our last month of mortal bliss. They're going to build a love nest while the sun is dying. And and it's kind of a great plot. I don't know. I think the story's fantastic. It's hilarious. I, I don't know if I would be capable of doing something like that, but I'm glad Antarion is... There's also, in the section, the point where we contrast the value that astronomers provide to this society, which is with their calculations, they predict and announce the imminent doom of the sun. And that is absolutely meant to contrast with this, with Melchior's disinterest, his dismissal of this sort of thing. And we get the sense that Melchior would do the same thing as Antarion would if he had a Themyra. Uh, But he has his telescope, so he'll probably just watch the stars for a month or whatever it is he could find to occupy his time that he loved. I also think there's a great note in this section where Antarion has been gone for a long time, and Thamira asks him, in what dream did you lose yourself that you could forsake me for so long? And this feels like the first time that Antarion has not been lost in this type of dream. And this is kind of his role as a poet in a society uh, made clear through this text. And I think you're absolutely right to say that the plot here in terms of conflict is very sparse and poorly developed, but I still really like what the layers, the nesting story, the nested story that Smith has built here to draw us into this world and bring us back out, as we'll soon find. It's certainly a great catalyst for obstacles to come. I mean, it's a fantastic, inciting incident, just finding out that you your whole planet is terminally ill, so to speak, that it has only one month to live. Now, what do you do? And how do you go about doing it? And how do you overcome the things that are going to get in your way? There's a bit of a time jump as we get into the the next section where Smith is going to tell us these things. Antarian has had to go back to his aristocratic estate in order to take care of some unspecified matters. And This movement around the city gives Smith an opportunity to describe that city as Antarian then has to make his way back to Thamira's palace. Everyone else in the city is outside in the streets having a a masquerade, a a sort of carnival as they prepare for this imminent death. And uh, I'm going to read this description because I think it's awesome. Beneath the black midnight that hung above them like an imminence of colossal, unremoving wings... The streets of Sedoth were aflare with a million lights of yellow and cinnabar and cobalt and purple. Along the vast avenues, the gorge-deep alleys, and in and out of the stupendous olden palaces, temples, and mansions, there poured the antic revelry, the tumultuous merriment of a night-long masquerade. I just think this is gorgeous prose. Well, when Ontarian gets back to Thamira, they sneak out of the city with, without any actual obstacles, but at last they reach the necropolis and the minarets of the dead. They take off their masks and they look at each other in a silence of unutterable love, and they share the first kiss of their month of ultimate delight. The penultimate section of the story describes how they spend this month. Their slaves wait on them, and we get some descriptions of the night sky and the two moons and the red sun, all of which is quite vivid and quite beautiful. And when the end comes, the two lovers murmur the supreme ecstasy of their tenderness and their desire. 
till the cold that had fallen from infinitude becomes a growing agony, and then a merciful numbness, and then an all-encompassing oblivion. And there's a, a sense here in this protracted scene that Smith really would like to write some erotic scenes into this story. This, um, the description of Thamira is pretty intense when she's introduced. Smith uses the word orgy when he's describing the carnival. And then we get this last bit, this month of delight. And this is actually something that Gene Wolfe says in his introduction to the Best Of collection. Uh, he says that Smith actually wrote way more explicitly than was allowed to be published in Weird Tales. And so the editor of the magazine, uh, Farnsworth, had to take many of those scenes out or, or tone them down quite a bit. That's fascinating. It really interests me to hear that he did a lot of overwriting, which isn't surprising given, <laughs> given this text, uh, but that he was really a romantic poet at heart that that's kind of what he was going after in his writing as well. And we'll be talking a little bit about that in our discussion too. There's really not too much to say about this section in general. Um, I love the fact that they basically squat in a thousand year old emperor's palace in ruins in an abandoned city far outside that they had their slaves who are tongueless. We learned earlier in the story so they can be discreet. They can't betray any secrets, take all the stuff out for the month of love before the sun dies and they, they freeze to death. I just think this is full of great details and a fully realized world through this trick of aging it to the point where you can't help but imagine its history. And I think that that's something that Wolf definitely learned from this story as well. Right. We learn no details about this immense historical past on this planet. But yet Smith writes in such a way that we fill in these blanks with our own imagination, which almost makes that richer than if he had given us you know, some kind of backstory to this planet, had, had fleshed out some of the important uh, uh, civilizations and cultures that had, had waxed and waned uh, on this planet. It's much better to just leave that to the reader's own imagination. Yeah, Smith is no Terry Brooks, I'll say that. <laughs> well... Our lovers' lives may be over, but the story is not. Not quite. Francis Melchior awakes on Earth in the chair near his telescope. He is strangely stiff and cold, and the dream that he's just had of Fandium and Thamira seems inexpressibly real to him. Almost subconsciously, he puts his eye to his telescope and looks for the star that he's been so obsessed with these last few nights. But the star is no longer there. Melchior lives out his life on Earth, but now he bears a double sorrow and is never quite sure whether Earth or Fandium is the dream. And it turns out it's the exact plot of the Star Trek The Next Generation episode, The Inner Light. And now it's the end of our story. Yes, and we will be talking about The Inner Light uh, and a few other science fiction stories that use a similar premise uh, in, in our discussion it, this is a fantastic way to end the story. I mean, Melchior is already a loner. He's already lost in his dream world. As you said, we see something like this happen with Jones in Blackwood's story, The the Insanity of Jones. And so y you even have to wonder at the end if Melchior, being an amateur enthusiast of astronomy, had even seen that star at all, if anything was real, or if this is all a dream. But because he has no real contact with 
reality with friends, with people who can anchor him, he's left adrift to live out the rest of his life always wondering. Yeah, this ending really leaves me wondering what Melchior does with the rest of his life. I mean, it, it seems here, right, that he's he's got this double sorrow. He is left with this sadness. But we can imagine, you know, the effect that this might have on another person, Captain Picard, say, in which it makes this person realize that living in isolation, uh, preferring telescopes and old vases to the company of, of people, to friends, to spouses, uh, is actually not a particularly good or fulfilling or rich way to live. It doesn't seem that Melchior has has gotten that lesson from this story, which is part of what makes this uh, a weird fiction tale, is that it does end on this pessimistic note, that being shown just how immense and how rich, how big the universe is, is just a way of learning how scary it is and how insignificant you are. He finds ultimately what he gains from this experience is is misery rather than uh, insight or some kind of joy. Right. And we have to ask what actually connects Melchior to Antarion. If Melchior is in Tarion's dream, what does that say about uh, the people on Fandium, about Antarion himself, who goes as a poet and lives out a mundane life uh, on another planet, perhaps out of habit? What is he experiencing? What is he getting out of that? Um, And what is the connection between the two? Why... Melchior, why can Melchior's consciousness travel back through the stars and live as Antarion? Why does he have this dream? Thinking about this just in terms of of the world building, we don't learn whether or not this is something that all sorts of people on Fandium can do, and in fact do frequently, that they are able to project their consciousnesses or, or something of their souls to other inhabited planets and to either become another sentient creature on that planet or to inhabit to kind of take over the the body and the mind of a, another person they find there we don't even know if anyone is a and we don't we don't even know if anyone besides antarian is even aware that that's what's just happened to him we know that thamira is aware that he's been gone for a little while but we're not at all told that she knows where he was, uh, what he was doing, and how he was doing it. It's possible. Yes, this is something everybody does. It's also totally possible this is just some real weird thing that happened to Antarian and Melchior because of, I don't know, some kind of, you know, accident with lightning or something like that. Right. Yeah, her que- Thamira's question about well, what dream could have been better than you spending time with me, basically, is the question she's asking. I mean, when Melchior wakes up having that ring in his head it does, and it not being inspired to become the poet, to return to Intarion's nobility, that is something that really puzzles me about this story is why Melchior, having had this connection to the noble soul of a poet, still continues to live his life on his armchair looking out at the sky. Well, I think as, as you hinted, before we even got into the recap, that, that in some way Smith is offering this up as a critique of 20th century America and saying that here in our society, this is what becomes of the soul of a poet. There's no room for the soul of a poet in this society. That person cannot do anything great or that is appreciated. That person can 
only hold down a, a, a job that is ultimately unsatisfying in order to buy a little bit of time to engage in some activity that at least operates as some kind of self on an otherwise bleary and bleak existence. Uh, I mean, that's the sense that I have of, of Francis Melchior, that he is the soul of a poet trapped in a, a capitalist society. I totally agree with you, but it makes me wonder why his hobby, his enthusiasm is in gazing at the stars. That might just be a mere plot necessity, but why he doesn't put away the telescope and write or why he continues to live on the fringes as an enthusiast of a community uh, where there are people doing the real work. Why not train as an astronomer or maybe the best way to put what I'm getting at is, do you think Smith is saying something about this, this sort of American transcendental philosophy found in Emerson and Thoreau uh, about the life of the soul? Is he saying that maybe there is absolutely no room for that for anybody in society? And the only people doing things that anyone recognizes are, are scientists and it's cold and calculating and all it can do is predict how things die but it doesn't have anything to say about how we live i think that's a fantastic reading of the text and and the real thing that we see ontarian do in this story is to reject the pessimism uh, the fatalism of this news about how we're all going to die and to see that from a, a glass half full perspective and say, great, we can just go have a lot of sex in cemeteries for a month. This is going to be amazing. If, if, if this world wasn't ending, we wouldn't get to do that. This is awesome. Yeah. What is he? A 15 year old uh, goth kid in, in 1987. What's going on? Here? Yes. I mean, basically is, I don't really know how old Smith was when he wrote this story, but he was not very old. So while we're talking about this role of the poet in society and, and maybe the nobility of soul that poets have, and this is something that Plato talks about as well, what do we make of Smith's Baroque prose? I want to read something that Smith said of his own writing style. My own conscious ideal has been to delude the reader into accepting an impossibility or series of impossibilities by means of a sort of verbal black magic in the achievement of which I make use of prose rhythm, metaphor, simile, tone color, counterpoint, and other stylistic resources, like a sort of incantation. Smith is saying here he wants to cast a spell on his readers, and that is the goal of his prose. He was also one of the last great kind of American romantic poets. So how do you, Glenn, in reading this story make sense of what he's doing with prose? Is he still finding his voice here? Does he sharpen this up? Does he find the right words to cast on the reader? As you read this story, and you've read other Smith stories as well, to make them believe the impossibilities he's selling. There were two phrases that really jumped out at me from the passage that you just read. One of the phrases was verbal black magic. That's amazing. I'm going to start using that. Uh, but the other was this notion that he has to convince people or trick them into believing these worlds. Why that jumps out to me is because that doesn't even seem to me now in 2018, like that's a, a, a task that a, a fantasist 
has because we as a culture have just bought into speculative fiction in a way that here in the 1930s, perhaps that was not so much the case and that there was some bit of, of trickery that would have to be engaged in. And we've certainly even seen that with Poe. Uh, having to convince people to read any kind of fiction at all, having to masquerade as a, a type of a philosophy. We saw Blackwood doing that last week as well. So that's a, a th- that's an aspect of Smith's writing that I don't think I have considered at all and then therefore certainly have not appreciated. But I really love how he throws all of these words, these adjectives, these uh, tonal, uh, col- these tone colors, I guess is what he says, at, at the reader to paint a picture in your imagination to make it vivid, to make it seem real, to almost overload your senses in the way that living in the real world, uh, you know, and, and, and turning off your kind of active thoughts uh, would do. The opening of the fourth section of this story uh, that you read a section of is, is one of the most incredible paragraphs in speculative fiction that I've ever read. He uses other phrases like worm-gnawed cadavers and describing the masks that people wear during this carnival, as you said, were painted masks designed to represent the peculiar physiognomy of a people now extinct. And this is, again, that sense of deep history, of deep time that he merely hints at and never gives us any more information of. It it reminds me of what Dan Simmons is doing in Hyperion with the character Martin Salenis. While we're on the topic of fake science fiction, noble poet heroes, uh, Martin Salenis is one of the the greats uh, who is also from a dying planet, but the planet happens to be Earth. The Earth changes and he leaves and wakes up thousands of years later and writes this really almost romantic ode to Earth's past that's a bestseller That's a bestseller because of the nostalgia factor. And that's why I'm kind of mad at Melchior in this story, because he has an opportunity to find that within himself, and he rejects it. He rejects the soul of the poet. So before we get off this topic of, of Smith's prose and his ideas of poetry, I, I just wonder what point you think he's trying to make about Melchior's final rejection. I know we touched on it a little bit, but I'd like to just get a a sum up of why you think, though there's no room for maybe the poet's soul in a modern society, why he wouldn't even try. We never actually see Antarian do any writing either. It's not entirely clear to me that being a poet in this story has anything to do with writing so much as it has to do with a certain approach to beauty, uh, to perhaps the universe, to things that exist in the universe, uh, to appreciating beauty and spirit, having kind of a mystical relationship with the universe. I'm not sure that poet in this story has anything to do with meter or words at all. We don't see anyone writing. I think that is a perfect point. It's about the ability to dream big dreams. I think you're absolutely right. To encounter the world on its mystical and spiritual level and to dream impossible things. Though one would hope that those types of dreams would lead to action at some point. And we're going to talk a little bit about that now. 
You brought up Inner Light, which is the classic Star Trek The Next Generation episode about Picard, who is basically invaded by a culture's dream of itself. He lives a full life as a man in this small culture and wakes up and is shaken by his own experience there. That's a very consciousness based it's the word in like weird fiction that lovecraft uses all the times like oniric right it's rooted in dreams there's also a science fiction procedural on nbc right now called reverie which is about how people use virtual reality to create fantasies and then they get stuck in them they live they're able to somehow live the fantasy in their mind there's something active that that's not quite a dream, but it's not quite life. The company's name on this is Oniratech. Please don't take this as a recommendation or a, a commendation of, of, of my, uh, or of a sampling of my own taste. It's an 11 p.m. show when you're trying to fall asleep, <laughs> if it's anything. Um, but that's rooted in virtual reality. And then there are other parts of the story that really remind me of Six and Lou's uh, The Three Body Problem, which was translated from Chinese into English by uh, Ken Liu, who we've covered one of his stories on our Patreon feed, the one that won you know, the, the triple threat, the, the Hugo, the Nebula, and the World Fantasy Award. The three-body bro- problem includes a plot um, where the consciousness from a civilization that is dying, or the planet is trying to reach out to Earth for one reason or another, uh, has created a virtual reality to explain their history, to prepare people for their imminent arrival. And all of this is to say is that this sort of oniric experience, experience, this dream experience seems to be a staple of, of science fiction and weird fiction, of speculative fiction. So we even talked about this last week with the insanity of Jones, as you brought up, that this isn't a staple experience, how dreams shape our reality in some way. So I want to ask you, Glenn, First, how you think dreaming sort of functions in this story, but more broadly, just why do you think we're so fascinated by this type of dreaming? Why do you think we're, we we find these stories to be so meaningful and important? You know, the type of story where we fully embody another consciousness or another consciousness invades our own, and we, yet we are active in that process. I'll let you answer that question, uh, but I'll tease the next one, which is to ask why dreams have been replaced by virtual reality by science fiction writers in the past 40 years or so. Before we started having this conversation about the story, to me, the the dream and even the, the existence of Francis Melchior at all in this story was nothing but a plot device. I think we've already uncovered a way in which Melchior is actually standing in very much for a young Clark Ashton Smith who would really like to be making it as a writer and is struggling to do that because no one appreciates him. But I just assume that this was the device that he was using to get readers to buy into the scenes on fandom, that he needed to start with a character who's relatable, that uh, the reader was going to need some kind of access point to this world. Because the idea of just opening up a story and being, bam, on this strange alien world in this strange alien society was going to take more buy-in, but also more work on his part in terms of, of building it than he wanted to do. But I think you raised some interesting points here that 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 in fact that he is doing something with the act of of dreaming built into this is this idea that all 
humans are the reincarnation of some other, some better type of sentient being on another planet or in some other realm. And that is automatically raising the question then, are the experiences that any of us humans have on Earth worthwhile in, in any way? Are they perhaps not actually just some pale imitation of the real, true existence of a soul on this place where souls originate? Which is, again, to say, platonic forms, which we saw in Blackwood last episode. This is coming up again here. And so this has us asking questions about what is even real, uh, and are there gradations to reality? Is there something that is completely real? And are there experiences that are are less real, but still not completely false? And that is exactly what virtual reality is, right? It's, it is not real, but it is seemingly real enough to function as it. And so you, I, you can see the straight line from this type of thing here in this story, uh, or Edgar Rice Burroughs' Mars stories, to using virtual reality. Getting to your question about why there has been maybe a, a shift in speculative fiction towards inserting technology into this, to, to moving from dreams to virtual reality, uh, to me has something to do with what the anxieties are. Usually when we encounter these types of stories in a setting where there is a, a type of virtual reality, The Matrix, for example, uh, Philip K. Dick stories, that's, ex- that's expressing a real fear that what we think of as being real is in fact not, that maybe we're all actually uh, in some kind of pod connected to a machine by other machines that are eating us or something. This story seems not afraid that that might turn out to be true, but sad that it isn't. That the dream here is, is almost a, a longing, a yearning to be on Fandium for a month, even though that's going to mean death, or to be wherever it is that souls originate from, because existence here in this reality is kind of perhaps not entirely unbearable, but miserable in some sense. So I think they're they're, they're rooted in two different uh, emotions, uh, sorrow and, and fear, at least that that's my kind of superficial sense of it. For me, when I think about the shift to virtual reality, to inserting technology into these old tropes of fiction, the oniric experiences, I really think about, I think as you as you brilliantly pointed out, the world of forms. And that one thing that's happened in modernity, in modernism, in the second half of the 20th century, is the breakdown of institutions that... that provided us with meaningful cultural myths about the world we live in. The world of platonic forms is is something that I think if you asked, you know, a high schooler today about the world of platonic forms, they would be, if they even knew who Plato was, they wouldn't believe it was something that really informed their experiences with the world. But something that does inform their experiences the world with a high level of design and thoughtfulness and even aesthetic beauty is this world of video games. And I think some of these science fiction writers, you know, 40 and 50 years ago were beginning to first write about the loss of maybe faith in this sort of thing, faith in the religious institutions that, that had formed society for so long and recognize this need for somebody to be the maker of dreams in some sense. 
And um, I think that that's a part of the shift as well is the mystical is encountering, as you said, this world of forms, that there might be a better world beyond our own that is made by somebody better than us. But I think we've reached a point in our civilization where those assumptions are absolutely nil. And so we think we can make better things for ourselves, but not in the real world anymore. It's too much of a hassle. So we can only make them in computers. That's part of the shift that I see as well. And I think the Matrix is a great example of this fantasy where the key to success, the key to winning is to go deeper into the machine, but knowing you've mastered the program instead of letting your spirit achieve unity with God, as we've discussed in, in Fifth Head of Cerberus. It's both a deeper in. So I don't see the same distinction that you see. I think they're the same anxiety that roots both, which is the dread of maybe living in a world without a designer or a designer that you didn't pick in some way that's in that's choosing your reality for you that you're actually not free at all and melchior has this dream of freedom here the same way neo does in the matrix but melchior comes to realize the truth that it was nothing real perhaps maybe though the dream was inexpressibly real to him the truth the dreadful truth at the core of his being couldn't help but to admit that it was nothing more than a dream. And so it did nothing. Dreams can't act in the world for us. We have to act for ourselves. Um, And I think that that's part of what's going on here is the fantasy is if we break the machine, if we break the design and gain mastery over it, then then we can be free. But in both cases, that myth of freedom, the way it's presented has only to do with your action in your mind and not the, your physical activity in the world. That's real interesting. I, I, I guess just to reiterate my own point, to me, it's about the emotion that you would feel in being able to tear down the construct, to, to, to break whatever the, the fake world is. Melchior here, or Smith, let's say, would be glad to do that because he thinks that what's on the other side is better. But I think in most science fiction stories of the last 40 years or so, the opposite has been true, that we would be afraid to tear that down because what we're going to find on the other side is going to be worse than the fake world that we're actually living in. That's where I see the, the difference in these emotional states in, in, term, in, in the approach to this idea. Oh, I think that's an absolutely brilliant insight. And I agree with that. I think the what's interesting about that is that if the fantasy is the same, is that we, we maybe recognize we're living in some sort of simulation, that there's some better world out there. The fear of the past 40 years has been that we need to maintain the status quo. And maybe before that has been some sort of revolution, in a sense, to, to, break, to actually break free, not to say yes, I am shackled in some way. I'm some product of my society. But to break free would be worse than what I'm doing. It's like the episode of the Buffy, The Wish, right? Except it's reverse, where Giles' hope is anything would be better than this. He would say, 
this is the only world that there is. I can't hope for a better world. To break this status quo in this dream of the wish would be worse than continuing to live with everything in utter chaos. Right. If 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 we all agree that the world is a prison, there's the then, the then the question is still: Is it better to be in the prison or outside of the prison? And and that's where we have this this different this different approach to this idea. And that's I mean that's kind of the apocryphal story of American transcendentalism as well as when Thoreau refused to pay taxes uh, to support the Mexican American War, which he thought was unjust. He was imprisoned as a result. His friends could bail him out really easily, and they did. But the story goes that somebody was walking by and said, uh, oh, what are, you, what are you doing in there? And he said, the question isn't what I'm doing in here. It's what you're doing out there, <laughs> supporting this unjust world. So I don't know. Everything, everything ties together here. Well, on that note, I think uh, now that we've, we've tied everything up with a ribbon, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brendan Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. And that includes the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. Well, we hope you'll go check that out. There's, I don't know, 50-something episodes there that you can listen to. And please join us on the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of the Planet of the Dead. This question of the shifting nature of the oneric experience really struck me this week. And I want to have this conversation with you, our listeners, I think it's a fascinating topic. So let us know not only what you thought of this episode or things we missed, but please join me in discussing why we need virtual reality instead of dreams in our stories. Next time, we'll be back with one of my absolute favorite stories, The Repairer of Reputations by Robert W. Chambers. Until then, we greet you and say farewell.